If you've got a Bible, if you want to turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 2, that is where we are going to start this morning. As you're turning there, I just kind of want to use this as an opportunity to talk to you about uh, one of the intricacies of life, and that is the fact that people can experience the very same thing, the same event, see the same thing. Yet, how they experience it, better yet, how they talk about it and explain it can be very different. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, if you've ever tried to reason with a three-year-old, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Trying to explain to them that the peanut butter sandwich will not kill them and they can eat it and everything's okay. Um, One of the best examples I could think of this in my life was actually when we were having uh, our second child, uh, Wesley. Uh, We were at the hospital, which is, you know, where you do that sort of thing, and um, we were there, and just kind of full disclosure, Hannah had an epidural uh, for this pregnancy, and so uh, we're there in the times uh, to have Wesley, and, and for her to be pushing, and uh, it was like so weird, because it's not what you ever see on TV or in movies, because she's like there, and having Wesley, and like talking and joking with her nurses, like while it's going on, and, and stuff like that, and I'm like, okay, this is pretty mundane, this is pretty boring, uh, I thought this was going to be more, you know, action involved in this. And at at the same time that this is going on, we hear from down the hall the most vivid, horrific scream I have ever heard in my life. And we both looked at the nurses and we were like, is that somebody having a baby? And the nurse goes, yeah, that's what natural birth sounds like. And, And as soon as the nurse said that, we hear the same person scream out, why does it have to hurt so much? And I thought, I'm a pastor, I know the answer to this. And uh, I thought about going down there and offering some uh, pastoral counseling, but I figured it wasn't the right time. And um, also kind of thought it was maybe a more rhetorical question uh, from the uh, person saying it. But uh, two people in labor, having children, both walked out of this hospital with kids, and yet they experienced something totally different, right? Right? Uh, that's kind of what I want to use to set up this morning as we look in Genesis chapter 2. It's where we're going to begin because we're talking about work. We're talking about work upside down and, and how we see work upside down and what that means for us in our lives. And uh, we get two different experiences concerning this subject in the first few chapters of Genesis. And there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God has been busy at creation. He's created man. And then we're told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's all we're going to read about that. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Two important words there, work and keep. And I'm not going to go into a deep study on what their original language and all that stuff. I just want you to know, in the Hebrew, these two words are, for work, it's abad, and for keep, it's shamar. And this word, word for work, especially, I want to focus on that for a moment. In the English, there's a lot of different ways to translate it. In fact, your translation, one of the words I like that's used in several other translations instead of work is to cultivate. It's this beautiful word, uh, this idea of what God is asking Adam, actually all of humanity, to do with what he has created. He says, cultivate it. As if God's creation wasn't perfect enough, and yet he comes along and he says, hey, guess what, guys? I have something for you to do. Here's this thing I've created. It's beautiful. It's perfect. And yet you still get to mess with it. 
In fact, you get to cultivate it. You, you get to grow it into something more. That, that actually, I, I'm inviting you to come along and, and to further what I have done here. To keep building it up and to maintain it. It's like the total opposite approach we would take if we put our kids in a room that we had made perfect and was nice and neat, right? Instead of saying, hey, do what you want with it, we'd be like, don't you dare touch a single thing, right? But God's love for us, he says, I've made this for you, and not just for you to look at and not screw up, but for you to actually continue doing what I've done. I want you to create as well. I want you to actually stretch all of your cognitive and creative powers into building an, an actual society, a society that reflects me, a society that is balanced, that, that, that is based on justice and joy. All these things that we talk about in God, God says, I want you to recreate here. That through this place, people will know me, he's telling out. Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It's interesting, these Hebrew words are the same words time and time again in the Old Testament that are used to describe what the Levitical priests were supposed to be doing. That the Levites, as priests, were supposed to be working and keeping. And if you know anything about the role and the function of a priest, it's the idea that there is a gap between us and God, and we can't fill that gap, and so we need someone to be a mediator. We need someone to do what we can't. We need someone to connect us to God. And so already here, God is telling Adam, he's telling all of us, he's telling all of humanity that you are going to connect me with people. That is your job. That is the work I am calling you to do. And you're to do this with my help and my guidance. I'm not leaving you alone in this task. I'm giving you everything you need. I'm giving you me. And the great thing about this picture that we get about work and God's intention for it in the Garden of Eden is that it is going to be fulfilling and it's going to be successful. Right? How awesome does that sound? That everything that you set out to do in your life will fulfill you, and it will actually work. Like half the stuff I should do and don't do, I never do, because I'm just like, I'll probably put a lot of time and effort into it, and it won't turn out the way I want it to. Why even bother, right? Why start? Just like two people going through labor and experiencing something different, we read Genesis chapter 2 here. And God says, this is what it looks like. This, I'm giving you, I'm actually gifting you this thing called work. And it's going to fulfill you, and it's going to be successful. And we're like, that sounds great. And I get that we're all talking about work here, but that sounds very different from my experience, right? Like, who here can say that everything you've ever done has filled you up and been successful? Not really probably how we would describe grocery shopping. Not how most of us would describe our normal 8 to 5 job, right? Don't think we would put mowing the yard in the category of connecting God and people together, right? Like even for those of us that, like those of you that have to take care of kids all the time, doesn't really feel like you're doing something that really matters. It just feels like you're trying not to them, right? 
It's like that's probably the only place that it like feels that way. You're like, okay, if my job is to connect people to God, the times when the kids won't stop and you say, you know what, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to send you to Jesus a whole lot sooner than you're supposed to be there, right? I will connect you to God. Like, we'll get the, you'll get there a whole lot faster if you just keep this up, right? That's maybe the closest. Yeah. I'm a real uplifting father. Maybe the toughest thing about work, and that is a big thing. We're not talking about just our jobs or our careers. Everything that goes in front of us, if we feel like we have to pour ourselves out into everything that feels like work, and there's so much that comes to us, and we're like, this just has to be done. Maybe the toughest thing about so much of it is it is so mundane, and it feels so unrewarding that we feel like just about anybody else could do it, right? That it doesn't take anything special to do what is right in front of us day by day. That you could actually probably put like a mannequin in our place and it would still get done, right? So how in the world can God talk about work this way? Say this is what it's about, and yet what I'm experiencing That's why I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. The story doesn't end in Genesis 2. There's a lot more that goes on. And just as as we kind of go through this, let me just kind of give you a disclaimer. It's going to sound like for a while, maybe, that I'm like really down on work. It's it's not that. But I want, we're building to a point here. I want you to see something. So we're going to talk about what happens and how things get skewed and, and how we see this in our lives and how it works itself out. And then... Again, the upside-down way of looking at it all. So there in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, if you know anything about the story of creation, if you don't, I'll explain it really quickly. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, this is your place. This is for you to work on, to keep. There's all this stuff for you to do. These are your confines. There's only one thing for you not to do. Don't eat from this one tree. They eat from the tree. They think they know better than God. And so with that comes sin. All these problems along with it. And here in 17 through 19, God is talking to Adam about the results of the decision he's made. And he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God literally tells Adam, you are going to scorch. This thing that was meant to be fulfilling, that was meant to be successful, when you set your mind and yourself to it, it still remains. Work is still there. But now it fights back. And now for the first time ever, you have the possibility and the potential of pouring yourself into it and it being totally and utterly There in verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Interesting note, just kind of a side note really quickly. found this and thought it was really interesting because it goes with what Ed was actually talking about last week. Uh, this, uh, this phrase, by the sweat of your face, where he says, you shall eat bread. 
Um, it, it sounds like it, hard work. It, it's going to take hard work. They've actually found that by the sweat of your face is an ancient Near Eastern idiom, um, basically to refer to anxiety. In the curse of the fall, God tells Adam exactly what Ed was talking about last week. That your days will be riddled with anxiety about where your next meal is. It's going to be this way till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And you know what? As much as we read Genesis chapter 2 and we hear about work and how it's going to be fulfilling and successful, this is where we read it and we're like, yeah, that sounds I know what you I identify with that. That for many of us, I'd say most of us, all of us, we often feel like we are caught in the cycle of working and keeping something that doesn't want to be kept. Then we just die. That we actually feel like what we've been handed is the job of toiling to get nowhere. So we work hard, we do a lot, we build up things, we amass things. What's it all for? Because I'm just going to end up right back where I started. That is the definition of slavery, isn't it? If you're a slave, you work hard, you pour yourself into it, it is everything, all that you are, and you wind up right back where you are. Nothing from it, no blessings, nothing to show for it. For many of us with the work in our lives, we feel trapped, don't we? We feel that most of the work we have to do is unrewarding, unfruitful, and not accomplishing anything of great significance, right? We're honest with ourselves. We're like, yeah, that sounds about right. Genesis chapter 3, we read this here, and we're like, that sounds exactly like my Monday through Friday. That sounds exactly like all the time, because my kids won't leave me alone, all this stuff, right? We identify with this. We see this. And in reading it and, and, and being presented with this and, and saying, well, this is the way it is because of what has happened because of sin in the fall, there's really only two ways that we can respond to it, okay? So I want to talk to you about those two ways and see what, which one you identify with, okay? And so as we go through this, you're going to see I spent a lot of time on phrasing these and figuring this out. It's going to blow you. Blow you away. Because when you read that you're a slave, that you are trapped by this, there are only one of two things you can do. The first is, you can accept it. You accept it. You say, yeah, that sounds about right. I've kind of figured that out about my life, that I'm going to work really hard. It's not really going to get me much of anywhere different, and then I'm going to die. And then you just say, you know what? It just is what it is. You know, why fight it? Why search for something more? I see a lot of people doing that. They're putting a lot of effort into it. They're going to end up in the same plot of ground that I end up in. Well, maybe not the same. We'll be next to me. But we all just die anyway. So why work harder? The mentality of I work just to live. Right? That work, the, the, the things that I have to do. And it's not just my job. It's mowing the lawn. It, it, it's 
It's fixing my car. All this different stuff that I would rather not do, I have to do it to survive. We live long enough in this way to where it gets to, you know you're living this way. If weekends and vacations become necessity for survival, not while we're in break. You ever feel that way? If I, just, if I don't get to the weekend soon, I might die. Tell you what, I feel that way a whole lot now because of my boss. But um, don't tell my story. You don't have to work with them. Uh, you live long enough this way. You, you, you react this way. You accept this thing, and it turns into apathy. You have to harden yourself to not care because it is too hard to care. It is too hard to care, to want to be something, to want to go somewhere. And just know it's going to end up right back where you start. If this sounds like you, if you're like, okay, I think maybe I've accepted it. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it while I talk to the other two. Do you see how this kills you well before? Do you see how just accepting that you are a slave not going to amount to much of anything. Once you do accept that, you're dead all the time. Think about that. Talk to the other. If you haven't accepted it, the only other thing you can do, again, it's going to blow your mind, is reject it. You can reject it. You sit there and you say, I'm not a slave. No, 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 no. I am better than that. What's more is I can that I can actually advance myself through my work. That through my work ethic, the amount that I do, what I amass, how, how I, the, the positions that I acquire, the results that I can point to, it will show that I am worth more than that. I am not just some mindless lemming walking around. And I can actually become something. You take this far enough and long enough, rather than being apathetic, it actually turns into self-proclamation and striving. It turns into pride. Let me just ask you this. You feel like you're this way, that you are trying to prove something about yourself, that you are more than this, better than this. Do you see how crazy it is to try to free yourself by the same thing that you're trapped by? that you are a slave now to work, that you're going to do this thing and give yourself to this thing, all this stuff, whatever it is in your life, and that somehow that's going to make you better, it's only going to enslave you to it further. It's like saying, I'm going to smoke, quit smoking cigarettes by smoking more cigarettes. It doesn't make any sense. I was talking to somebody one time who had just recently retired, and he had been in a... Uh, line of work and profession for a really long time, and, and like any profession that you're in for a really long time, it, it, you can start, your identity can be wrapped up in your, your job. Um, and there are professions that this is even more apparent than others. Like as a pastor, I was like really aware early on that my identity and becoming a pastor got wrapped up in being a pastor. And I'd like keep telling people, I'm just still mad. And they're like, no, 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 you're a pastor. Like, 
And there are professions that are more inclined to that than others. Like if you're a teacher, you kind of know this and uh, that sort of thing. But um, he had been in a line of work like this uh, for a long time. And, and so I, I was talking to him because I'm like interested on this side of it. Uh, so what's it like to get to a point in your life where you're done doing the thing that for such a long time was who you were to people? Like what's it like to... Like, how do you not just, like, lose your identity and your sense of purpose and, and that sort of thing? So I was, I was basically asking him, like, in that mindset, how do you retire well? And I, I asked him this, and, and he looked at me, and he said, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. How do you not lose your identity? How do you not lose your purpose? He said, I, I, guess, I, I guess for me, you know, and the, and the thing to do is, he's like, good financial planning. I was like, Really? Good finance. Yeah, he's like, yeah, and and he went on to you know explain to me how like because so that he could be retired and he was able to you know you know stop working and and that sort of thing and um, you know as good as good financial stewardship is so that you can retire well and all that sort of stuff I'm not knocking that in the least. I was like, man, don't you see how you're still playing by their rules? You are still defining yourself by the work you do, or in this case, don't do. The fact that he didn't have to work anymore, that in his mind he didn't have to do the stuff he didn't want to do, was the ultimate defining feature of who he was. He was still trapped, even though he felt like he was free. We live in this world that tells us you're only something if you accomplish it. You're only something if you have something to show for it. And for those of us, we either accept it or reject it no matter where we're at. The thing, the dirty little secret below the surface that nobody will talk about is the fact that in this right side up view, of labor and what we pour ourselves into and what we give ourselves to and just work. You can never be If you accept it, you say, this is all it is, this is all I'm ever going to, I'm just going to live this life, I'll live it the best I can, but I'm going to die anyway. I, you might say that's a good way to live. You don't have to think about that. Yeah, I just I deal with reality. And I would contend, yeah, but you're not really content on the inside, are you? Who can be content with the idea that I, I, my life's not going to amount to that much and I can't hope for anything more than what I already have? But if you reject it, if you are trying to prove yourself, if you are striving for that thing, there is never a time or a place that you will be. My granddad was a uh, pretty, uh, early on in his life, he was a pretty successful real estate developer in central Indiana, and as he was up and coming, um, he, uh, he was at a country club playing golf with the most successful real estate developer in Indiana. And uh, after, after they played golf, uh, they were sitting in the clubhouse, and my, my granddad looked at this guy and he said, I can't wait to be where you're at. And uh, the guy said, what do you mean by that? My granddad said, I cannot wait to be at a place where I don't have to ever worry about it. 
I look like my granddad. Like I worry about money every day. I worry about money more now than I did. You might think there's a place that you can get to prove yourself, that you're something. And, and once you reach that, but there will always be more. There will always be the need to go further. And you'll think, I can and I should. Because the right side up view of work is based entirely on results, and there's always more results to be had. It always could be better. So we start looking at our lives, we start looking at the things in front of us, and we start to decide that it's only good or worth my time if it produces the results I'm looking for. We live this way our entire life. Look at the cost and what it would require of us to do it, and we say, will it result in what I want it to? And if it doesn't, I'm out. Because we're hoping for work to break us out of the cycle. We're hoping for the very thing that is enslaved. Truth of it is, so what do we do? We can't go back to So it seems like at this point, this is what we're left with. This is the best we can do. You choose to accept it or reject it, and that's the only option you have. And then comes along this guy named Paul. Paul talks a lot about. I just want to focus on one verse that I think sums it up pretty well this morning. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's answer what we do is pretty simple. It says, know who you are. Know who you are. And knowing who you are, there's just two things that you really need to grab on. The first, he says, is the first part of that verse. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, you've got to know it's Jesus in you, not you. It's Jesus in you. It's as if Jesus was here. And so what Jesus was about, what Jesus did, everything that he set himself to, the work that he did in his life, his purpose, his mission, that is now yours as well. And the great thing about that, what that means is, there is no longer anything futile in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because everything that God wills, everything that God sets his plans and his purposes towards is accomplished, is successful. And Paul is telling us that the work in your life, because it is Jesus in you and not you, will be successful. Why? Because you are about what Jesus is about. And for him, everything about who he is, is going towards the greater purpose of God's redemption of people and this world. 
So Paul says, if knowing who you are means that knowing that everything you do, all the work you do, no, how, no matter how small, how mundane, how unrewarding it feels, is going towards the purpose of connecting people back to God. Yeah, I know you may not see how mowing the lawn does that, but just hang on, we'll get there in a moment. No other pastor on Sunday morning is going to tell you how mowing the lawn helps people find Jesus, but I'll do it. Talk about a loophole to get out of, right? Um, He says the second thing. The first thing you need to know is it's Jesus in you, not you. The second thing you need to know is you have been saved through Jesus. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What? Who loved me and gave himself for me. There is nothing more you have to prove. There is nothing in your life that you can prove that is greater than what Jesus has done for you. What greater thing can you achieve through your work than salvation? What greater status can you get to than to be called a child of God? Paul tells us implicitly here, and he tells us explicitly in a lot of other places, that we are no longer slaves, but we are. So he says, work in that freedom. Work in freedom. And freedom is an alien concept to us. We like to talk about it, but we do not get it. It literally flips everything upside down. Because exactly of what Genesis chapter 3 is talking about, we don't know what it looks like to not be enslaved, to not be looking towards results, to thinking somehow our results somehow give us an accomplishment. Our results somehow tell us it was worth it. We don't know what it looks like to be told it's already done, it's already accomplished, you're already there, so now what you do, you can do it out of that. feel like we keep, have to keep moving ourselves in this direction to prove who we are and maybe prove even who God is. That if somehow we can be successful enough, it'll prove that he is who he says. There's this, um, there's this monk, his name was Brother Lawrence, and um, if you don't know the story of Lawrence, I'll just kind of tell you really quickly. Lawrence was really nobody significant. Uh, he, was a, he was a monk in, I think, like the 1600s, and uh, he actually became a monk because he failed at another job. He was actually this really clumsy guy, and so um, just no special skills or anything like that. And if you don't know about monastic orders, monastic orders have a certain hierarchy to them, and when you come into them, you have to do kind of menial tasks, and then um, if you're good and you have certain skills, they kind of keep elevating you to more and more, and eventually you can become kind of the leader of a certain monastic order or something like that. Well, Lawrence started out as a cook, and he never moved beyond being a cook in the monastic world. Really, nobody of any significance. And yet, there was something about his life that was so different um, that a book was written. It's a book that's called Practice of the Presence of God. It's a short little thing, and it's about these conversations that the head of Lawrence's monastic order had with him 
uh, on just his approach to life and, and his approach to working. And he was quoted as saying one time that he never even wanted to pick up a, a single strand of straw unless it was according to God's will. During one of the conversations, Lawrence said to this leader of his order, he said, we should not grow weary of doing even little things for the love of God. Why? Because God does not regard the greatness of the work, but only the love with which it is This is upside down. God doesn't. God is telling you, telling all of us this morning, that the ultimate result has been achieved. What more do you think you can prove? What more do you think you can gain? And so, his question, what he cares about, is why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? But better yet, and this is where the real depth of this comes, he is asking you a hundred percent. There are a lot of things that we can do in our life that we aren't that committed to, and we can still get great results. That we have no stake in it. It doesn't matter to us whether or not it succeeds or fails. We kind of hold back and we're like, I'll be like 25% in, and we'll just see like how this thing goes. Paul even tells us, he says, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And you live your life now according to him. And he gave himself completely for you. So because of that, you give yourself completely for what he is calling you. That everything in our life is bringing people closer to God. Doing what God wants us wants it to do, not because of the results we can produce, but because of why we do it, and that everything that we are toward it is what he said. I used to have this uh, college professor who would talk about when it came to grades. Uh, he would say, hey, don't worry about the grades, don't worry about the thing. All I'm asking for you to do is put in a good faith effort. Basically, he's saying, if you give it your best, don't worry about it, you're going to pass. The thing is, I never believed it. Why? Because I, we're not good at working with freedom. They think that just our best effort is good enough. There's got to be results tied to it. I never trusted him. I worked harder in that class than I did in any other class because I was like, you don't love me the same way Jesus loves me, and I think this is a trap. He was just waiting for me to take it easy. So he'd be like, see, this is, you know, gotcha. I was trying to think about what does it look like to work in freedom? Because I don't think we get the concept at all. And as I was thinking about this, I had the perfect example just a, a little over a week ago. Um, a, little, a, a, a week ago was my birthday. And I don't like making a big deal about my birthday. I don't like talking about it. But it was my birthday and people would keep asking me, like, what are you going to do for your birthday? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe, like, sleep, I hope. Like, that's, that sounds like a really nice birthday. But, so it was Saturday morning, and we didn't have any plans. And um, at, like, 10 a.m., my mother-in-law knocks on the door and comes in. 
And she says, I was thinking that for your birthday, I would take Eden and Wesley, which are our two oldest, I would take them to the grocery store, and we'd pick out stuff to bake you a cake for your birthday. And if you want to know anything, the best birthday present you can get for somebody with three kids is to take their kids to the grocery store, because that's not a place you want to take any children uh, whatsoever. Uh, and so, so she, she was asking me, we were sitting there, and she was, they were about to leave, and she's asking me, she goes, what do you like? Like, what would you like for your cake? And I couldn't get a word in because Eden just starts talking about all this stuff with cakes and what kind of cake they're going to do and everything like that. And so because I couldn't talk over, I just said, you know what? Just let her have creative control of this whole thing. Whatever she wants to do, you do it. And my mother-in-law was like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, it's okay. And so, um, so that evening when the time came uh, to celebrate my birthday, uh, we had a chocolate cake, which is not even my top three of favorite cakes, uh, with purple sprinkles, because I'm a big purple guy, and uh, these really weird, totally inefficient, twisty candles uh, that dripped wax over the whole thing, but you could tell a three-year-old would love them. And what it really turned out was, and we, for my birthday, we had Eden's birthday cake, and uh, she picked everything she would have picked for herself. To top it off, the card she even got me was a sparkly pink card with a Mickey donut with sprinkles on it, um, because Eden loves Mickey and donuts with sprinkles on it. Uh, strangely enough, it was the exact same card that Eden picked out for my wife for her birthday. Um, so my daughter is nothing but consistent, and uh, she knows what she likes. But uh, she was so into this. She, she got to pick out everything, and then they came back, and she poured herself into it. Uh, she cracked the eggs. This is a three-year-old cracking eggs. To, I didn't get any shells. I don't know if anybody else did, but she, she was there. She helped with the entire thing. And so when, I, when we came in and they were singing happy birthday, she was so excited. She was shaking and she kept hugging me and she was singing happy birthday and everything. And I was just like, oh, man, not the cake. No, I, <laughs> I've gotten two miles today. That's awesome. I, I'm rolling. By the by the world's standards, my daughter failed because the results were not I would have done. Because, right, her birthday, if you're going to give somebody something, give them what they want. We were, um, it was that night, and uh, I was putting her to bed, and she popped up on her bed. She gave me a big hug. Dad, I'm so happy it's your birthday. I said, uh, you're happy it's your, my birthday because I'm but I said, Eden, thank you so much for making my birthday so special. And I said that, her face was like big. That's what it looks like to work in the kingdom, knowing that you are a child of God. What he wants for you is not the results of what you can achieve or do, or prove. He wants you to do what he has called and asked you to do because of how much you love him. This is what he tells us in Genesis chapter 2. Where it says there, he put him in the garden. The literal translation for that word, word put reads something like, the Lord God took the man and set Or any work is done. 
Why? Because Adam knew God and God knew him. That Adam was content because of his relationship with God. So then the work Adam was called to do was not out of the place of finding that, of needing to be filled up by it, of needing to prove it was coming from a place that he was already He was already This is how the upside down the life God calls us to flips work on its head and that you do not work with the hopes of being content. You work because you work. You give yourself completely because you already have it all. God wants you to know what it is like not to strive out of need, but to strive out of love. You do what you do simply because you're glad it's his And you want to do something to the best of your ability with everything what you You can only have that through knowing Jesus Christ. You can only have that by having a relationship with God. It's nothing that you can do yourself. And so if you're in a place where you've accepted it or you've rejected it, you're trying to prove something, you're not, or you're like, you know what, this is the best I can do, it means something's off in your relationship with him, that you're not getting everything you need from him. But when you do, it then means you can be content while you work. That is such 